John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. everybody and welcome to the cinephiles live episode for right now it is just me the outlaw john roca but i know my partner steve morris will be jumping on here in just a second and we're gonna get into this big conversation here about film criticism or fans rather versus film criticism and uh without further ado let's bring on my co-host here who has popped on steve morris how are you hello hello Listen, Good it wasn't that easy getting here. <laughs> I, was, I was in the mountains. There was snow. There was a river. There were two kids. There was traffic. There were constant route changes. And yet, wow. I care. I care about the cinephiles family. And I am <laughs> And I'm here for all of you. So I'm ready. I'm ready to go. What is it we're talking about again? Yeah, we're talking about <laughs> fans versus film critis- critics and, uh, you know, opining and talking about whether... This is go- this is leading or ushering or hastening the death of film criticism. Uh, this is something that I pitched to Steve uh, because of the A.O. Scott article that he wrote about a month ago. And I talked about it on The Nation uh, on one of my episodes last week. And I wanted to dive in further with Steve about it. He was gracious to be like, yeah, hell yeah, let's make this our main topic for the Cinephiles Live episode. Because as a person who has a feet firmly planted in both worlds... I have found myself in such a, a weird position in between the fandoms, the fans and the critics being part of both. And I'm just so concerned about what's happening because as I've been do- doing research for this episode, this is the 2022 
was the biggest divide between critic scores and fan scores in the history of film. And that is causing me a lot of concern as we approach this. And I thought Steve and I would have a fantastic conversation discussing it. So I uh, just to let you all know the stream labs and super chats are open. So if you want to send your questions, thoughts, and comments and guarantee they'll be read, send in super chats to stream labs and they will be. So Steve, when you, when I propose this idea to you, when I, when I uh, floated this possibility to you, what made you be excited about talking about this here as a Cinephiles Live episode? Well, I think that what's happening with fans and movies mm -hmm. and fandom is a symptom of what's happening everywhere. And that Ooh. and that's sort of why I wanted uh, I was good to talk about it is I think yeah. first of all, I think we've lost track of what film criticism or what criticism is supposed to be yeah we've lost track of because of things online we've lost track of a certain sense of of decorum and sensitivity and humanness mm. and compassion and all of those things yeah. and the desire to attack mm -hmm. is just so destructive and i you know i've gotten my share of it you've gotten an even bigger share sure. of it sure. and it's like it's not that i don't believe that people should shouldn't be passionate about the things they are passionate about sure i think passion about movies books ideas politics philosophy everything passion's great yeah attacks yeah. are not and that and i guess that's why it was something i wanted to talk about yeah i agree and that's something that i'm i'm i look at and i see and listen it's not like we i mean part of becoming a film fan right let's just stop there a fan of films a cinephile which is, of course, our namesake for our podcast. But part of becoming a fan of films is finding those other people who are also fans of films and then sitting at school lunch, sitting outside after school, going out and hanging out, going on that bike ride or hanging out playing video games, and you debate the film. What do you like the film yep. or didn't like the film? What you enjoyed about the film? Those are the beginnings of film criticism. For the people that become film critics those are the places where that those seeds are planted those ideas are born and then you go and seek out other film critics that have already been established have already been part of uh the um what do you say the pop culture zeitgeist of film critics and you read their reviews to give you a better idea of how to analyze film and how to break it all down i think too much nowadays we're lost in this idea that i can do it if he can do it, I can do it. If she can do it, I can do it. Anybody can do it. And that's why you've had the birth of 700 million YouTube channels. But the truth is, being able to actually analyze the film and break it down and take it piece by piece and understand the themes and the symbolism and what the filmmaker was going for is very different than something like, yeah, I enjoyed that. That was fun or it was cool. You know, there's more to it. And I think what's happening now is, is what you've said, Steve, I think so well, is that Fans are starting to feel attacked by critics and they're starting to fear that critics are causing problems for their franchises. And I don't mean all fans, right? The more toxic fandom elements are starting to see and set their sights on critics and start to go after them for, as you said, painting them as the elite, the snooty, the dismissive. And to be fair, some critics have not done themselves a favor by calling some of the people who enjoy these movies, mindless masses or the dumb ones or the LCD or what have you. So certainly we've got some problems going on. I feel like on both sides of the divide, 
Uh, and it scares me that we are going to see the death of both uh, by the end of this battle. It, it's a, it's a weird situation. And I would say, first of all, yeah, I think criticism is an art. It's not an art at the complexity of making movies. There are very right. few art, art forms that are as complex as making a film. But there are critics who write beautifully yeah. and say things that are can be profound and can enhance your experience of film in a huge yeah. way. But as an art, not every artist is for you. So right. there, I am not a big fan of of snooty movie criticism. Yeah. And yeah. there's one critic in particular who's quite brilliant, who I'm not a fan of. Yeah. But the, but just like with a movie, the fact that I'm not a fan of doesn't mean that the work that that guy does isn't valuable. Right. It is valuable. You yeah. know what I mean? Because there's somebody else who is a fan. And yeah. so like and, and this is the thing. And, and I would like to bring it back to just a, a really simple point, which is that when you and I are talking about a movie, what we're talking about is this was my emotional experience when I saw this film. Mm -hmm. It's personal. It's how this is how I felt and how you felt is the truth. It is. it, And it's not that I have to agree. You've right. seen movies and had a different experience from the experience I had seen that movie. And then you say, this is the experience that I had. Yeah. The fact that I didn't have the same experience doesn't mean you're wrong. Right. And that's like the thing that I really want to start with is that this is my so so like we did you know our last live show was once upon a time in hollywood yes. where we got more negative feedback yeah some of which was fairly harsh than uh -huh. we've ever gotten on anything and right. the thing is is we want our fans to be passionate it's great that they're passionate and it's great that people love that movie yeah. like you and i have a strong reaction to the end of that film that didn't line up with a lot of people yes and that's totally fine but when you go Roka, you're wrong. You're an idiot. Morris, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You don't understand right. that movie. Well, no, that's the experience that I had. And I would like to go back to, again, it's like, I mean, you know, you you were in acting classes. I was in acting classes, yeah. in writing classes, stuff like that. When you got criticism, were you taught how to properly deliver a piece of criticism? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're, yeah, to the, for the most part, yeah, you want to make sure you, you're, you're respecting the feelings, but still taking truthful to what you're saying to the person so that's so it becomes constructive rather exactly. than dismissive and reductive yeah so if you said if i thought you were totally wrong which yeah. there are times when i have and you thought yeah. i was totally wrong yeah. i would go that's a really interesting perspective you had i saw this really differently yeah i is that i wouldn't say john you're a fucking moron what the fuck is wrong with you right because that's not constructive. It's not useful, you know? And this is this world where, and, and, and the other thing that I add to it is because people who are fans, when we get to like Marvel stuff and Star Wars yeah. stuff and all that stuff, people who are fans, they feel, it feels as if sometimes they think the movie owes them something. Yeah, yeah. Or if they loved the thing that they're a fan of, that anyone who doesn't is therefore bad or wrong. And that gets into this toxic thing that's just, it's unhealthy for everybody across the board. The movie was the movie. Your yeah. experience was the experience. That's okay, you know? Right, right. And I think the dangerous part of this, and I'm going to bring up A.O. Scott's comments on this as well. I think the dangerous part that for me, what I'm seeing now is people within my sphere of YouTube criticism and YouTube fandom, I see them blurring the lines in ways that are quite uncomfortable for me because... And, and yes, they're picking up subscribers, they're picking up followers, sure. and that's all great for them, gravy and good money and all of that. 
But I've seen tweets and posts like, ignore the film critics, go and see this movie, or you know what, uh, go and see these movies, because if you don't go see these movies, they're going to stop making them. I don't care how terrible they are. And I think that's dangerous, especially if you're a person who is painting yourself as a pundit or a reviewer or a critic or even an influencer in the sphere. I think there is a responsibility that you have to present uh, a point of view in a certain way. You don't have to denigrate the film critics in order to encourage people to go see the movie. You don't have to. And I think encouraging people to go see movies that are of low quality and are overwhelmingly received as low quality is a dangerous thing because then you're saying, yes, go and frequent this movie because then if it makes a lot of money, they'll keep making these movies. And if they and if they and if people are making a lot of money with movies that are with a medium effort and a medium overall effect, then that's the kind of movies that we're going to be getting more consistently as opposed to occasionally. And I think these are the dangerous things that I'm seeing is the blurred lines between fandom and criticism for people who paint themselves as critics or as reviewers and, and pundits and go on big shows and talk like that. I think it's a dangerous thing. You know, they, yes, storm the Bastille. And it's like, you know, one day they're coming for you. The second you create yourself as this kind of above and leading the charge, you yourself will eventually be turned on as well. That's how it works feeding the rabid masses so can i ask you a question yeah yeah and maybe and i don't know that there's an answer to this but when you say critics or reviewers or pundits mm. do those have different definitions in your mind 100 percent, or i wouldn't okay. give them different names so what is yeah. the difference a critic is someone for me who is part of a critics organization and mm -hmm. he absolutely adheres to following a critics ethos and a critics point of view and approaches the films from a critics eye Mm. reviewers are people who are just on youtube or do work for these websites and just review the review the shows mostly tv and occasionally film right they review it they're not going to go deep into the symbolism and the mythology and dive into the nuances and the all of those kinds of things that's what a reviewer does is giving you the basic overview maybe they'll go a little specific on certain things but by the end you should be able to read it within a minute or two right? You should be able to go through five reviews or six reviews, depending on what you've eaten on the crapper. Like I finished an EW one. Uh, I, I would standardly finish an EW magazine on the crapper in one time. And that's what it's made for, right? A crit EW is like a reviewer thing. Now, Gleiberman, some great critics have been a part of EW, so they are critics. But for the most part, it is that. So that's the way I look at reviews. Now, pundits are people who go on shows or have their own YouTube channels mm, mm -hmm. and talk about these things and um, speak about them with about fan, you know, about the, the franchises, all these kinds of things. So they're more about opinion based rather than analytical thinking based. So that's the way I, in my mind, define those three different things. So but they all cross section in movies, right? So it's funny. I think your definition is better and more accurate than what was in my head. But I want to share a little <laughs> yeah. bit of what was in my head, okay. which is just that there is a there is a thing which is like, I like this movie. I didn't like this movie. Thumbs up, right. thumbs down. Right. It's real simple. Yeah. And that there are people whose opinions you trust when you're deciding whether or not to go to a movie. It's the consumer reports aspect yeah. or the or the Rotten Tomatoes aspect. Point. Yeah. Should I see this or should I not? There's also, in my mind, you know, there's, you can, I, 
it, when I was in film school, there were a bunch of people. I got my uh, MFA in film production, but there were a bunch of people who got their MFA in film criticism. Right. And there's you think about, you know, we talked a lot about the French New Wave and mm. how those were film critics. And those were people yeah. who were at a higher at intellectual level whose job they felt was to analyze film and to teach you about film, yeah, to yeah. give you tools to understand film that were beyond the sort of, I liked it, I didn't like it. And and, and so it's like, while I'm not, I, I don't think of myself really as a film critic, that's, that's not really how I define myself, but I certainly think The Cinephiles is a show devoted to hopefully giving you tools to see the movie in a deeper way. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think like, so, yeah. And so, and so I think the that idea doesn't jibe very well with some of the way fandom works right you know i mean i think the geek buddies is a good example where i listen to your spoiler reviews because they actually help me appreciate the show because you're telling me things i didn't understand about the show right not being within the fandom right. you know so i think you know it's like the and i'll say one other thing which is that the the thinning out of what hollywood does because they're so focused on a certain set of kinds of movies mm. is part of the origin of this problem. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, you mentioned the geek buddies. Yeah. When we do those reviews, I get a lot of a pushback from some people who are in my sphere of like, why are your reviews so long? Right. Why are they 50 minutes on a 35 minute or 40 minute show? And the truth is because, I, we approach it from a critic's point of view. Uh, yeah. I, I think when we want to break it down and analyze it and look at the symbolism and the themes and what's be basically trying to be said here. Cause to me, that's a way of honoring the showrunners and the writers and the executive yeah. producers who are creating these TV shows or these films. And you're saying, I see you like, I right. see you. Right. And man, whether I'm right or wrong, I see you. And, and I think that's a, a good thing to be honest with you and that's what scares me as we slide too deeply into the other side of things uh with the fandom but listen critics also deserve uh, some some pushback and some uh objective or constructive criticism for sure but let's let's bring up ao scott's thing that kind of inspired this uh, he wrote a whole article uh talking about him leaving uh, becoming a film critic he's going back to doing literary criticism I feel like that's even like they could be even worse sometimes, but he is going back to that because he's kind of hit this wall and it's the toxic phantoms that have essentially moved him out of the job. And he started doing, he was the head film critic starting in 1999 for the New York times. Manolo Dargis, I think came over in 2010, 2011, but he had essentially been the, the head film critic there for a number of years. And then, uh, as I said, uh, this on past February, he gave it up and he's moved on. Uh, but he wrote a long, like, retirement piece. And a piece of this is what stuck out to me here. Uh, it says, inevitable that movies sometimes uh, abuse their power and mistreat the people they love who love them the most. When my kids were little, they were regular companions. Saturday morning preview screenings, I often objected to the pandering cynicism of family-friendly films like The Lorax and Despicable Me. I also marveled at the artistry of Studio Ghibli and the sublime ingenuity of Pixar in its glory years. Similarly, I was pleased with the first couple of Spider-Man pictures, impressed by Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, which my brilliant colleague and fellow chief critic Manola Dargis reviewed, and admiring of the way George Lucas connected the mythic dots in Revenge of the Sith. But I'm not a fan of modern fandom. This isn't only because I've been swarmed on Twitter by angry devotees of Marvel and DC, and more recently Top Gun Maverick and everything all at once. It's more that the behavior of these social media hordes 
represents an anti-democratic, anti-intellectual mindset that is harmful to the cause of art and antithetical to the spirit of movies. Fan culture is rooted in conformity, obedience, group identity, and mob behavior, and its rise mirrors and models the spread of intolerant, authoritarian, aggressive tendencies in our politics and our communal life. This is something right at the end there that you had touched on earlier, Steve. So that's basically, I mean, the rest of the um, article goes on and gives a little more on both sides of these arguments of what he was coming from, but that's the gist of it. And so, Steve, when you read something like this, from a noted film critic who's done it for 20 years, came in in 1999, or well over 20 years, rather, came in in 1998, which is one of the greatest years for movies, and is now walking away from it because of the toxicity of modern fandom and what he senses is these fandoms wanting to abolish any sort of intellectual approach to their films. I mean, the second half of that uh, piece that you read is so damning. And, you know, the connection to our politics is so strong. And it's this groupthink. It's the, if you, whether or not it's a movie or a, uh, a political movement or an idea, come to it with a preconceived notion of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Right. So if you're going, I see a, a person of a, a certain ethnicity cast in a role that I don't expect, and you go destroy them, having never seen whether the performance or seen the film or seen anything like that, yeah. well, you are coming at this from a toxic place, frankly. That's that's my opinion. But the And the same is true if you go, oh, all Marvel movies are crap. Anyone who likes that stuff is an idiot. You're coming to it from a toxic place. Right. But I mean, like, and, and this is the thing, and you and I for years have talked about the, the cheap seats and the idea of the yeah. people that hurl in criticism, not understanding how fucking difficult it is to make a film. Yeah. And so, like, coming in with a preconceived notion based on something small, you know, not the totality of the experience of seeing the movie, not the ideas of the movie or the visuals of the movie, and just go, this one factor makes this thing horrible or great. And anyone who disagrees with me, I must destroy. We're in a really shitty place, you know? Like, I I, I know I've said this many times when we had him on the show that I listened to, I really like this guy, Charlie Cook, and I listened to the National Review, and I am angry every single time I listen to that show because their political persuasion is different from mine. Yeah, I and frequently I am not just angry; I am furious, smoke coming out of my ears, ready to throttle them because I dislike something that they say. Right. And in every episode, I learn something. Yeah. And so, what we don't balance is what the go, going into a place and listening only to people who agree with you, or going into a place and despising anyone who disagrees with you. Yeah. Neither of those positions are places where you get to learn anything. They're only places where you get to reinforce your view of the world. And yeah. movies, art, is supposed to be one of the things that you can learn from, that you could be challenged, that you could have new ideas, you could have new experiences, and no, you're not going to like them. I mean, like, the movie, you know, we talked about this recently, but, like, Triangle of Sadness yeah. is, is not a pleasant film yeah, for yeah. me. Yeah. I found it to be extremely unpleasant. I doubt I will ever want to watch it again. And yet, it is a powerful film, I thought. You know, and that's part of the movie going experience. And what Hollywood is providing is like a lot of we just want to make you feel great. We want to make you feel, which is fine. That's fine, too. But that's not the whole thing. And that's part of what film criticism can do is go here. This is why you should see this film. And you might not like it. Or this is the part you might not like. Or you might find this hard. But this is why you should see this is why it's important. You know, 
Well, and this is what scares me. And, you know, we're both of a certain age. So for us, we're, we've like conditioned to be open to the fact of, you know, so, something that A.O. Scott was in, in the great um, uh, podcast you sent me, the episode of The Daily, you know, where they're interviewing A.O. Scott, which if anybody's watching right now who likes A.O. Scott or wants to see or hear a critic's point, his point of view even more fleshed out, you should listen to that episode. It's really good, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. It's like 43 yeah. minutes, fantastic. And, and the, the, the conversation he has about how he went to see these films when he was younger and, the, you know, he we used to see them by himself. He was essentially describing what I did. I would go see yeah. these films by myself. I'd go to the Sherlington. I would go to these, you know, um, art houses to see these films. They weren't showing at my AMC multiplex in Dale City. I had to go find other places. I drove into D.C. to see some of these things. But for the first time, I would drive into D.C. to go see these movies. And it was about experiencing these films and opening my mind. But the he said, but reading Pauline Kael's stuff, reading all that, it's just, that's essentially what I did. And going into the library and checking out those books and discovering the the older movies, I, I there was there's a joy in that and and feeling like okay, this person disagreed. Why wait? Why did she hate Citizen Kane? Or why did she not like it? Or why did she this or that? And so, or why did he not like this? And so, it causes your mind to be open it causes you to defend your point of view even stronger so you can even uh, you can even push your intellectual boundaries more to find out okay how would i counter her point or his point about exactly this? What, yes and i think that's that's so essential and what i see happening happening and listen again there are critics who take it too far and take out the Perfect. knife and take out the fork and enjoy it but when did we become such a sensitive fucking fandom? This is what drives me nuts about the, the fandoms now is that so many of them are so goddamn sensitive about anybody criticizing their film or, or giving or lobbing logical criticism that they're not willing to just blow it off and move on and go, you know what? I liked it. Fuck it. Move on. They have to destroy the thing that has a voice or a platform to say that the film that they love is not good or, or that they like is not good. And I think that's so dangerous to try to destroy the thing that is, that is trying to educate you look past the bullshit and get educated. It's important because if you start to become dumb about film, the studios will cater to that and won't make the extra effort to give you really layered, nuanced, complex stories. And they'll just give you fast food. And at the end of the day, you're going to feel like you feel after you have fast food, guilty, out of shape, diabetes, and leading to a fast death, and I'm in the brain. So, <laughs> so I'm just saying. Um, anyway, well, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead, Steve. Well, I well, and I think you brought up what is the other point of this whole thing, which is yeah. that fans are only part of the equation. The studios is another huge part of the equation, and it's because of what they're aiming for, which is that they are spending the majority of their money, the majority of their research and yeah. their uh, resources, and the majority of their personnel to try to do the Marvel Cinematic Universe in one way or another. Yeah, yeah, That's the overriding goal. That means that they're aiming for the widest possible audience because any of these movies that cost multiple hundreds of millions of dollars, they're aiming for a billion dollars. A billion is the only way to succeed. Yeah. And therefore, and they know that things like big spectacle, big special effects, huge marketing campaigns is what's going to help them get there. Right. And so what happens is, is it used to be that yes, studios did want to make big popular movies, but they wanted to make Amadeus and they wanted to make, right. you know, out of Africa yes. and they yes. wanted to make and they wanted to make When Harry Met Sally and they wanted to make The Princess Bride and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to make a wide range of movies yeah. because 
the audience they were aiming for was all of the audience. And so you wanted movies that grandma would go to see and you wanted movies that grandma would go to see with the family and with the kids. And you wanted to, the movies that mom and dad would get a babysitter because they would go out because it wasn't for the kids. And they, and they wanted to fulfill all of those different needs. And so they made a lot of different kinds of films. And one of the things that's really interesting in the A.O. Scott the daily that he talks about mm. is is even though like the streaming services you know hire Martin Scorsese and a bunch of interesting filmmakers to make these right. films because they're not in the theater for a limited amount of time people aren't going to them and having a shared experience yes they're subscribing to Netflix and going oh yeah I'll watch that down the line but then they never really do they end up watching another episode of Friends or they end up watching yeah. you know whatever that Korean uh, body muscly thing that's you know I forget well, yeah, the physical 100, 100 which physical is a, 100 because yeah. that's comforting and you go maybe I'm not up for a three hour difficult film by a great filmmaker but because we keep putting that and Netflix doesn't care because they just want you to subscribe right. they, if, if Martin Scorsese gets you to subscribe to Netflix they don't give a fuck if you never watched his movie right. they just want the subscription when that Martin Scorsese Scorsese movie was only in the theater for a few weeks or a month people would go to see it they would have this shared experience and they would have this interaction with each other and that interaction would include the film critic yeah, yeah. that's not happening anymore and yeah. that's something that we've really lost yeah and I don't want to let critics off the hook as well and you know there there are I have seen the advent of a new kind of criticism that is about making sure I still keep my contacts at the studio, making oh, sure. sure I still get to go see the screener first or screening first, making sure I still get the goodies, making sure I still get these things. And it's a, it, what it does is it, there's a new generation of criticism coming through that is softer criticism. It doesn't mean that their points of views or their analysis or their breakdowns of stuff isn't valid. But there is that twinge of not wanting to go too far, not wanting to offend the, the director, not wanting to offend the actor or the producer or the studio head, because then the publicist might not let me go and do the junket. There is that whole thing. Sure. And that has been happening from the, as you said, from the studio side of things, that is a little frustrating. The older film critics are essentially getting moved out so that these new, softer, more forgiving critics are coming in who are by the way fans who are becoming critics that is something that i think is dangerous i think it's okay to piss off a director and a producer and an actor in a studio that's kind of the point of criticism is to be honest and break it down it's not about uh you know uh how can i say this using toxic words on purpose to elicit a reaction it's about being honest and breaking it down and not ending with your uh, criticism by saying, but if you like it, it's great. Like th there's, there's a thing here that you have to explore and discover. And I think, I don't think a lot of, and the studios have conditioned these new, new wave of critics to, to essentially uh, blackmail them into thinking, if you, if you're too critical, you're not going to be able to interview this person, or you're not going to be able to get this person uh, to, to, to talk to. And I think that's the dangerous because these sites want to stay alive and they can't stay alive without content. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a unholy partnership. Well, no, I won't say that, but it's, it's, I, a, think, I yeah. don't think you're far off. I don't think you're far off. I mean, like yeah. the thing that I think Fair about, enough. and I know you, you know, have to do some of this stuff, but yeah. like there is the, because there's so many people on YouTube, so many people on Twitter, so many people 
who's who have developed followings because yeah. people want to hear their opinion. The studios are dependent upon them as part of their marketing arm. Yeah. Because what they're going to do is first they put the announcement that three days from now there's going to be the teaser. And then and because they know that a whole bunch of people are now going to speculate on what may or may not be contained within the teaser. That's right. part of their marketing plan. Right. Then the teaser comes out and then there's nine million. I mean, again, you, you're you doing some of this. Yeah. There's nine million people competing to be the most interesting person to comment on the teaser or the trailer or whatever the thing is. Right. And so. And and to in order to get the most followers, maybe you have to say the most toxic thing. You know what I mean? Because yeah. Because that's going to bring people along. And so there's this symbiosis that is really unhealthy, I think. And it's exactly the same thing in politics. In politics, yeah. one of the ones that really yeah. bugs me is the constant need to make predictions. Right. Is that it's every fucking day. Okay, Trump, you know, we're not going to get into it, obviously, but Trump's indicted. What does that do? How does that do? What does that do to the Ron DeSantis campaign? What does that do to the likelihood that Biden is, in fact, going to run again? And what does that do to their chances in this state? And you speculate on that. And then tomorrow there'll be a new event. And then we're speculating again. And all of the predictions are shitty and they all mean nothing. And it's all emptiness. And it all gets people angry and riled up and yeah. increases the level of toxicity because in order to get views, you have to say more toxic things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and again, that's what I see happening on YouTube. There are certain channels that trade in on that kind of um, uh, angry toxicity. You know, the, the idea of, oh, a person of color is in the lead, a woman's in the lead, and they do these uh, thumbnails that, uh, you know, get people to click on them. And then right. some of them lie straight to people's faces. Like I watched some of those for the first half of that He-Man thing that Kevin Smith did. And some of those videos were straight up lying about what the storylines were with some of the characters in order to fit the narrative that they were pumping out. And to me, that is so similar to what we see on the political side of things. The misinformation yep. is what drives and the, but the fact that people click on it in the hundreds of thousands, yeah. I think, is really scary when you look at where we're going now. I think something you brought up earlier is it's occurring to me right now in my head. In times past, we looked at mainstream movies to be a bit uh, a little more educated, a little more intelligent. And so those are the films that people were going and were making millions of dollars at the box office and were really supportive. It wasn't until the superhero stuff started popping up at the beginning of the 2000s that things slowly started to more franchises. That started to change. Sure, uh, sure, we could go back to Jaws in 70, yeah. uh, obviously in 77, but like, or 76, but like that's where we saw summer tentpole stuff. But I think where we really saw the um, seismic shift was at the beginning of the 2000s when the superhero movies were coming up and people starting to like them and saw what they could do. And then 2008 happened and that's the launch of the MCU and everything has changed since 2008. And so I just wonder where we're leading to because the films that actually demand film criticism are much more smaller in terms of the quantity and the amount. They're more of the independent. They're more of the streaming films. They're not necessarily going to be the ones that cross over. Everything, every all at once, is the anomaly. That is not the rule now. Right. That is the anomaly. And so, finding a way to artistically create a multiverse—not an easy thing to do—and get people in the theaters to see it. Also, not an easy thing. Led by an Asian woman. Also, not an easy thing to do. 
but it got done and it got rewarded for the anomaly that it was, but that's not going to be the standard. And so right where I feel like, and I don't want to do the prediction thing like you hate so much, but I feel like where we're going isn't a good ending spot for getting incredible films uh, at the volume that we used to get them yearly back all the way up until like 2005, 2010. Uh, uh, and to be real clear, it's not that I don't think we shouldn't spe- it's not that I think we shouldn't speculate about the future. It's mm. the constant and you hear it so much in politics, you know, like, so what what are the yeah. odds that this person wins the you know, Iowa primary or whatever it is? It's like yeah. that's it's the it's the meaningless predictions to having a discussion about where yeah. we're heading is something that's important that we should have. Yeah. I think part part of it, you know, this is where this term great movies that ruin Hollywood came from is the idea of a movie like Jaws makes hollywood go oh it's easier to do like ip is the perfect example yeah, of yeah. if i have a built-in ip even if it's something that's not huge yeah i can guarantee i will get this many more people into the theater than i would before right if i have a this movie star that will bring this many people in if i have this kind of spectacle that will bring this many people in and the thing too the the importance of whether or not it's a good film yeah. can be pretty low. And I haven't watched yeah. like the Venom movies. I haven't watched, uh, there's a, you know, I did watch uh, a couple of these, like Aquaman I watched, which yeah, I think yeah. is a fairly bad movie. Yeah. And it made lots and lots of money. And, and, and ho- yeah, and Hollywood, you know, Warner Brothers doesn't look at that and go, oh, the movie wasn't that good. That's a real problem. They're right. looking at it and go, that movie made a shit ton of money. Right. Keep right. doing what we're doing. You know, and so that's that's where you get. And and again, the prestige isn't coming from winning Best Picture so much anymore. Right. No, that's you know, it's like it used to be like, look, we made you name whatever. You know, we made Lawrence of Arabia. We made, you know, whatever Best Picture you want to name. We made these great films and they also made money. Those things aren't happening on the big screen so much anymore. Yeah, Steve, it's a great point. And I I think it's as, as you're talking, it occurs to me that it almost feels like a sociological thing where oh, yeah. the current generations rebelling against the older generations and their approach to movies. And so the rebellion of that, of the younger generations versus the older generations being played out here through movies, we're going to go see these films. Fuck the critics. We're going to go see these films and, and see it multiple times. And people vote with their dollars. Or we're going to bomb a film, review bomb a film on Rotten Tomatoes mm. or on IMDb or or wherever to try to destroy it. Like Black Panther, Captain Marvel. A lot uh, of the reviews, reviewers wanted to bomb it so that it wouldn't make money. But it did. Both of those films made over a billion dollars. And so it it is working and it isn't working. It's working for a headline. And for that contingent of people, they get a self-satisfaction that they drove the number down but box office wise the studios are still making their money if it's a good film now captain marvel not a great film but certainly enough people enjoyed it that they came back and watched it over and over again so it's just an interesting place now to see that there's a rebellion occurring in the take in the kind of movies that are being made now for the masses um and um and like i said i don't know what ends up happening is that becomes the norm. Because I think 2022, we're going to look back on that year as a seismic change and where that leads us to down the road um, in terms of the account, the kind of mass uh, entertainment films we're going to create or studios are going to create for us to consume. 
Yeah, I, I, and I want to go back to just restate this thing of yeah. that. One of the things there are problems with film criticism. Sure, sure. And there are film critics, you know, who like I think one of the things we've always talked about in the cinephiles is yeah. that we want to judge movies for what they're trying to be, not for what they're not. Right. You know, so it's like there are movies that I really have a great time with that I don't necessarily think are great films. Right. Yeah. And and that's okay. And so if you go to if you loved Aquaman and you went to see it and it was great and you had a great time, that's totally great. Yeah. I have no objection. I mean, if you wanted my opinion, I might tell you the things that I don't think are so good about this film, but I can't really remember them because I'd had a few cocktails by the end and it just, you know, blurs by. But I also think, again, it's what it's what you said about fast food is there's a certain point where it's like there's other things we can get out of yeah. film yeah. as an art form that can help us, you know, yeah. having a great piece of entertainment, a great piece of mindless spectacle. That's great. That's totally, totally fine. It is not a balanced diet. And there are other things because when we think of art. We think of this thing that is supposed to elevate us, that's supposed to make us better, make us yeah. think. But, and in particular, I would say the power of art to make us see things from perspectives that are not our own. Yeah. And in general, and I am in general a fan of the Marvel movies. Mm -hmm. They're not doing that most of the time with the Black yeah. Panther being one of the exceptions, I would yeah. say. You know, but it's not, I totally love Guardians of the Galaxy. I think it's great. And I'm moved by it, but it's not like I thought anything deep you know you know it didn't change me as a human it was fun right or even joker making a commentary on our destructive toxicity yeah uh, within our society yeah i agreed um let's hit some of these stream labs that have come or super tests that have come through vincent zawada says don't feel like it's dying it's just sadly a microcosm what's that's everything in movies politics sports which has toxic fans for decades yeah vincent it's a good point for sure um, i agree but it's worse it's yes. much much i mean yeah were there toxic fans calling into the sports radio show in 1988 yeah. there totally were but it's worse mm -hmm. and i do think it's dying because i think more and more people who were critics like we grew up with reading and the critics that took over for them i think as ao smith signals as those critics move out of those positions we're not getting the same quality of constructive, incisive, intelligent, fearless criticism that we used to get. It's much right. more softer now. JMB says, Woo, thanks, guys. Well, there you go. You're woo, you're welcome, JMB. <laughs> uh, JMB also says, I imagine, maybe wrongly, that you guys would like to keep this to the realm of film criticism, but criticism, but do you guys see a parallel between the ragey, anger inducing, clickbaiting YouTube channels with a certain news outlets well jmb i think we touched on that already and 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 hit on it but if you have something more to say on this one steve i, I think we did cover it though i mean there, there's no question in my mind that it's part of the same phenomenon fueled by social media increased by the time we spent looking at our phones yes used by uh yes these media outlets that see anger as something that drives them and the fact that it has been co-opted more and more by the shifts in our political environment, I will say not naming names, but starting with Donald Trump, the, this is, you know, the, the rules changed. Yeah. And the things that you could say, there were, there were things that just, it might have been bullshit, but we were, had respectful bullshit that has now gone away. Yeah. And it's because of the power of feeding toxic fans. Yeah. You know. 
Agreed. Anthony Pomas says, a film like me is like air, an invisible element, but one that I need in order to stay alive. Film criticism is what the cinephiles do with craft and resonance, but also joy. Oh, oh thanks so much, Anthony. That's very kind. It's very kind of you. Let's see. I thought we had one more to roll through here or a couple more. Here we go. Uh, J&B also signing in. I want to know where's my Roka produced Steve directed Wendy Lee starring Star Trek the musical set in a mirror mirror-esque multiverse. Um, it is in your bank account when yeah. you can find um, uh, $250 million to make that happen. I can, can, I, can, can I have a brief digression? Sure. Okay. My problem with the Mirror Universe is that the only, one of the very few times I actually think the Mirror Universe in Star Trek is used well yeah. is in Mirror Mirror. Right. Because what they did after that, in most, if you see it in Deep Space Nine, if you see it in other places, they went, oh, this is the place where everyone is just evil. Instead of, instead of going, this is because the question is, are the people in the mirror universe genetically the same or not? That is my right. digression, right. because my feeling is what makes it interesting is if you raise Captain Kirk in an evil culture, this is how he will behave. Mm. Not that he is genetically evil. If right. he's just genetically evil, it's not interesting. It's right. only interesting is if that's our Captain Kirk and that's our Mr. Spock. That's anyway, point. that's my digression. That's a good point. Vincent Zawada says, love the conversation. Thank you, Vincent. We appreciate that. Thank you. Um, we did have a stream lab that came through here. Spencer James, I think that Rotten Tomatoes has hurt the validity of film criticism, criticism, but also the way studios treat Rotten Tomatoes. If a film is fresh, they advertise it like crazy, but if it had a bad Rotten Tomatoes score, the stars will come out and say, it's a movie for the fans and not the critics. I think this is an interesting point. I like this from Spencer James. As a Rotten Tomato Films critic, which I am, yes. on the tomato meter, um, I am. I have always defended Rotten Tomatoes because I have used it for what it is good for. And that is to enlighten me with criticism from other critics because they link to other critics' reviews and uh, breakdowns and um, criticism essays and stuff <clears throat> there for you to enjoy so if you see a film or or you're curious you're interested in a film then there are film critics that you like you can read their criticism and decide for yourself if you want to go see the movie now i agree with you in our fast-paced world and add world adhd world people are like uh what's the score great i'm gonna see it no uh, it's not a good score i'm not gonna see it not going to waste the money. Also, because film costs more now, go go see a film and whatever. So there's a lot of things. But Rotten Tomatoes is just a tool. It is not advocating the death of film or film criticism or anything like that. And I think people too put way too much power in the Rotten Tomatoes score as a way of saying like, oh, this is destroying films. Yes. Do, do studios use the Rotten Tomatoes score? Yes, they do, because the audiences will see that it's fresh and go, okay, this must be good. I'll go. That's their job to advertise the film, to get as many bucks yeah. in the films as they can. That's the marketing department's job. But you won't see too many that advertise that a film is fresh when it's 60% fresh or even 70% fresh. It's not usually until you get to the 80, 90% fresh that the studios use that. That's the difference there, I think, when you're looking at Rotten Tomatoes. But I do agree with what you said. I'm, Steve, please chime in on all this uh, that I think it's toxic and detrimental detrimental as fuck when actors directors or producers say well the, we made this for the fans the fans love it the fans should go see it it's about the fans bullshit you made things to be liked by everybody don't lie and you can tr i know you're trying to promote your film and i get it but 
there's a there's just this hatred of criticism that spews out from creatives sometimes that I think is dangerous as well and adds to the toxicity that motivates these channels and these fandoms to default to the top or flip up the toxic switch. I think there's so much here. I'm trying to figure out how to, how to, how to what to say first, but this is what I'll say first is that the idea of we made it for the fans. Yeah. It gets into a weird, you know, we've talked a lot about fan service, but I, I think a good example, probably the best example too. There are two fantastic examples recently on television and they mm -hmm. are the last of us and Picard. Yes. And the thing about both of those is are they 100% servicing the fans? Yes, they are. If you are a fan of either Star Trek in general and Next right. Generation in specific, you are getting all sorts of wonderful goodies that are making you smile. And the same is true of Last of Us. My understanding is if you played the video game, which I haven't, but like yeah. you're getting all sorts of stuff that's making you happy. And none of that stuff, particularly I'll say with Last of Us, is yeah. necessary to enjoy that show. Is yeah. that they're what they are doing in both of those cases is they're trying to make great fucking television and they're pleasing fans along the way. There's a lot of stuff now where it's just like we just need to give the fans the candy that's going to make them come to see the movie, right. even if the movie is not all that good. Um, get, getting back to the, the Rotten Tomato thing, I think, and I don't, I'm not on there very often, I don't go there very much, yeah. but it, it's a tool, I think, right? And to use it as a tool. Like, if I look at this and I see, like, for instance, I went because I was curious and I looked at John Wick Chapter 4 and it has a 94% with the tomato meter and a 94% audience score. Yeah. That tells me that I can have a pretty good sense that it's going to deliver on what a John Wick movie is supposed to deliver. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I, that can give me some confidence. It's, it, I, I've told you about the jelly bean jar thing, I think. Um, yeah, this remind is, me. So the jelly bean jar thing is they would you'd be at the county fair and there's a giant jelly bean jar and you'd have to guess how many jelly beans are in the jar. And basically all humans suck at this. We're all terrible at it. Nobody is good at it. It's not a skill anyone can learn. But the more people that guess, if you average everyone's guesses, the closer it'll get to the actual number mm. so that we as a collective. Yeah. Can guess how many jelly beans is a jar in the jar. But as a individual fuck no you're fucked you can't right, do it right i use yelp a lot for restaurants not because i read individual reviews on yelp because most of them are dumb and useless yeah. but if i see that 1500 people reviewed this restaurant and it has a four and a half stars i could be confident that that restaurant probably knows what they're doing you yeah. know what i mean yeah like yeah. i use the jelly and that's what i think about with rotten tomatoes is that individually if i looked at any of those reviews i might agree i might disagree right if in general the audience score is high and the review score is high. I have a good sense of that. Yeah. What's really interesting is when the audience score is high and the review score is low. Because right. what th that tells me something else about the movie, which is that'll happen like on a horror film or something. Yeah. It's like if I'm a fan of that particular style of crappy horror movie, the cr then I'm going to like it, even though the critics don't think it's a good movie. Right. If I'm not a fan of that particular style of crappy horror movie, then I should stay the fuck away because... I'm not going to like that movie. You know what I mean? That's yeah. what I mean. That it's a tool. Right, right. And it's funny you bring that up because I do have uh, this graphic. to put. This is 2022. Um, uh, this is an incredible divide between fans and critics. Um, Stan, and this is, I'm getting this from this uh, fantastic uh, Bloomberg, Bloomberg article by Lucas Shaw that he did last year in August 
of last year talking about the divide in film criticism. And he's saying that 2022 has given the highest marks uh, to most of this year's blockbusters in terms of the division between them. Um, And they looked at the audience and critic score for the 10 biggest movies from every year in this century to better understand 2022. And that's look at the divide here. And it was like about five points difference. But if you look at here, we're looking at 10, 20, 30 points difference in some situations to between the critics and the fans. And this is what I see when you talk. And this is what I look at when you talk about. And this is aggregate. If I can see it, aggregate of Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb and Metacritic. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking at that and you're just like, this is where we're starting to see patterns starting to concretely not develop concretely take hold here in how we fans are looking at films versus how critics are looking at films and i personally don't see a way back uh and it's unsettling and it's sad because you look at uh 2005's numbers this is much closer well Mm. that's 2015's numbers there look how close the fans versus critics are it's only a few and this is only seven years before right and the um 2005 numbers are even closer is it nine those numbers see the numbers there for 2005 is nine three eleven there was the king kong and war of the world's difference but then there's madagascar mr mrs smith uh batman begins with only 11 points difference and hitch one point difference so it's much more closer when you look at these films um, and then if you look at the, and that's 2015, if you look at how how um, critics have been reacting to Marvel films, the numbers have started to consistently go less and less since 2008, where we started with a high of 86.5. The highest we've gotten, of course, was Black Panther with 92. We look at Endgame at 86. You look at Infinity War at 76.5. But down here, it's Doctor Strange, Thor, Love and Thunder, 61 67 spider-man got a little better on 80 but you're seeing that these critics scores go down for the marvel stuff now starting to become a consistent pattern and you're looking at the differences between critics and fan scores over like 10 year segments and this has been developing for the last 20 some years this divide growing ever stronger each year to where now we've gotten to the point after 2022 where it's very stark and hugely noticeable i think uh so we 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 came up with our marvel plan Mm -hmm. to do them on the 10-year anniversary of the release and that that required that last year we did a ton of marvel movies more than i think either you or i really would have wanted to do right right and there's no question that we got pushback from our fans of people going come on with all the marvel stuff and you and are going look we're just trying to get through this yeah you know and now we'll get to a more reasonable number of just two or three a year um uh but i get it and if i was a critic and and the and if i were ao scott and the marvel movies just keep coming at me and i keep having to review them i would get tired you know yeah it's tiring and the thing is they have been less good and yet the numbers are still well i guess that some of the numbers are less like i know ant-man was less right yeah ant-man is is right and this is what's brought the critics thing ant-man and shazam Two, Ant-Man 3 and Shazam 2 coming out at the same time. This has really caused the battle to flame up again because 
a lot of critics were irresponsibly going on social media who, who, you know, who's, or not critics, I'm going to say this pundits or reviewers were irresponsibly going on social media and telling people to go see Shazam. Um, and I can't help but think that, well, your job depends on these superhero movies staying in existence because you host shows about this stuff. You host panels about this stuff. You know, there is a sign kind of self-serving element to that that I think is dangerous. Whereas people who actually want these movies to be good. What you want to do is encourage people not to go. Um, although I would never tell anybody not to go, but maybe by your critics, your criticism or your review, you're encouraging people not to go um, because you want to send a signal to the studios, do better, work harder, create better product so that we can talk about it in a positive way and fans can come and see it multiple times. So this is, whereas like, that's why I think Warner Brothers is um, keeping Ezra Miller as Flash and didn't just scrap the movie because I think like Top Gun Maverick with Paramount, they know they have a massive blockbuster on their hands. That Andy Muschietti has done an incredible job with this film and that's why there's, and they, they know the critics and the fans are going to like it and they're going to make a lot of money off of this. And so I think that's the dangerous part of it is to lead in, uh, uh, lean into the idea of, well, whatever comes out, we should all go see it because they'll just keep making it. And if we don't go see it, it'll end. And the truth is, if we keep making um, consistently mediocre or terrible superhero films, it's going to end anyway because yeah. the... Um, people who are not in the bubble of diving into this stuff and knowing every nuance and reference are going to stop coming. And you need them to want to come multiple times so that your film, uh, your franchise can survive. I'm going to say something and the toxic fandom might want to come at me for this, <laughs> but I want to say, I want to try to say it in the right way, which is that Film movements generally only last a decade and may or maybe two. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. so, and I, I, I'm going to say it in the harsh way that people will come at me for, and I, and then I'll explain. But it should end, you know. Mm. Like, I mean, basically, that unless you can can continue to prove that you could show me something new, yeah, then yeah. you should end. You know, it's like we we grew up on comics, we grew up loving these superheroes, we grew up thinking man, if only the world could see what we see. And then the world did see what we see, saw. Yeah. And that's great. But you have to continue to deliver something new, a yeah. new approach, a new way of thinking about it. And what Marvel has done, and I think to some degree Star Wars has done, with the exception of Andor, which is a whole other thing, yeah, is they've just said, we figured out what people want. Let's give them more of that. And you can never do that. Any moment as an artist that you go, I figured it out. I'm going to deliver it again. You will die. Yeah. And, and, and should, because I'm not a social Darwinist in any way, but I am an artistic Darwinist mm. is I believe that you needed to have the seventies to end what the studio system was doing. Right. And then you needed to have jaws and star Wars come on. Yeah. But don't forget the lessons of the 70s. You know, like if we just did one 70s movie after the other and never had Jaws and Star Wars and never had Raiders of the Lost Ark and never had Back to the Future and never had the Terminator, but that'd be a bummer. Like, 
Yeah. We need the new, and then we need, like you talked about 99, like that we need the Matrix and Fight Club and yeah. Seven and these other movies. We needed, I mean, I'm sick of Quentin Tarantino at this point, but we needed fucking Quentin Tarantino in the 90s to say fuck you to the 80s. Yeah. You know, and now we need new filmmakers and new artists. And can they be superhero films? Absolutely. They totally could, but they also can't go, yeah, we're just going to do that again. They have to go, no, I see a different way to make a superhero film. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an excellent point, Steve. And it, you know, something I've been saying on I, I used to say on Collider Movie Talk when I was on it, but also on my channel on my shows recently, it's just like, oh, is um, if how can I say if the genre or the uh, doesn't expand, it's going to break. It's going to yeah. blow. And and what ironically, where we're seeing the most expansion of the superhero genre is on TV is on streaming services with things like the boys and invincible and other stuff that's coming. There are other things that have come on like already. We've got a Scott Pilgrim anime coming. That's a, a comic book connected thing. So there are ways to expand the franchise, expand these things, but you and I both know studios don't like to take chances um, and they get burned. And when they get burned, they're like, no, no, let's go back to what we did before. And then they're stuck doing both and not being able to accomplish either in a satisfactory way. And that's what I think is the next stage of the superhero films and whatever is moving into TV. I mean, these Disney Plus shows, um, you, you, they're a mixed bag, but you can see that they're figuring out. If Secret Invasion is great, then that'll be yet another one to throw on the pile that they can do them this way, keep the genre alive in this way and keep these uh, superhero things coming in this way. And that's exciting. And we'll see what Bob Iger coming in and saying, we are now spreading these things out. Maybe that will be the thing that delays the demise of the superhero film uh, for now. Um, as opposed to if we kept going at the pace that we were going, I think we were heading for a quick demise of the superhero film genre because it was just becoming untenable the amount that you were asking the audience to commit to watching these things plus the tv shows plus possibly any comic books or anything connected stuff so it's a lot and star wars kind of suffered through this and i think that when the sequel trilogy fell apart they defaulted to the tv not knowing if the tv was going to be a lifesaver or sink them completely and it happened to be a lifesaver for now um, and we'll see where that leads us to as we're on the precipice of Star Wars Celebration and then possibly right. announcing three new movies. So so I, I have several thoughts. The first is I'm far less sanguine than you on the superhero on mm. TV. I think with the Marvel ones, basically, I've enjoyed some of them, but none of them have hit it out of the park. And most mm. of them have, have had have a lot of drop balls and a lot of errors mm. for, for me. Um I, Good I want usage to... in the opening day being yesterday. Good usage there. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. But I, I guess I get extra credit for being lucky. Um, <laughs> at least I didn't call, like, you know, go into mix my metaphors and make football references. Yeah, yeah. No. I, I, I succeeded there. <laughs> um, the, the thing I want to say, which, which really just occurred to me, is I really think that Quentin Tarantino in the 90s is directly equivalent to Frank Miller and Alan Moore in the 80s in Ooh. comic books. Yeah. Is that really? comic books were stuck in a bit of a rut. Right. And then Frank Miller comes along. And I'll say Frank Miller in particular, although I absolutely love Alan Moore. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but both of them. And says, 
I can take these same characters that you've been telling stories about forever yeah. and I can take them to a place you've never seen before and make them fresh and exciting and new and thrilling. And I remember I was on the Marvel list because I'd done some writing for Marvel in the mid 90s. So I for brief, very briefly got all the Marvel comics. It was yeah. like a stack this big every week, you know, and they were and it's because there had been a huge boom in comics in the early 90s. Yeah. So they're yeah. putting out so many books yeah, and they that. all sucked. They just it just they because they diluted it. Yeah, they diluted the talent. And that's where I think we are with superhero movies and superhero TV shows and Star Wars TV shows right now is they went, oh, people want this stuff. Let's make a ton of it. And the quality has come down. And just like with Tarantino and film in the 90s, just like with Frank Miller and Alan Moore in the 80s and comics, mm -hmm. there is an opportunity. And Andor, again, Andor is the perfect example, I think, of doing this. Yeah. There's an opportunity to say, I could take that world. I could take that universe. I could take those ideas and I can show you something you've never seen before. Yeah. And it's going to be amazing. And that is what all of these genres need. And the thing is, is my guess, that makes the film critics happy. Yes. You know? Yeah. Is the, to bring it back to that, it's like, great, show me something new. Show me something I can talk about. I mean, frankly, I went to see Ant-Man in the theater by myself. Mm -hmm. And I, we, you and I haven't talked about it at all. Yeah, no, I found it so completely average. <laughs> and, you know, just like, yeah, okay, I saw that, you know. Yeah. And it had a bunch of big scenes and it had actors who I like and had the stuff. And I just didn't care, you know. Yeah. yeah. And I haven't seen Shazam. My guess is I would like that even less just from what I've heard and seen about it. Yeah. And it's like, man, you need artists. You need someone to come in. And again, this goes to what was so great about Ryan Coogler and Black Panther yeah. is, or with Guardians of the First Guardians of the Galaxy. The, here's an artist with a vision or um, the first Taika Waititi Thor, yeah. uh, Ragnarok. Like all of those, those are an artist with a vision who goes, I'm going to show you something new. I'm going to show you something right. you haven't seen before those are great the rest a lot of the most recent stuff in all of these genres has been here's more of the same yeah you said you liked it you know buy my ticket yeah like alfonso Cuaron coming in and doing um prisoner of azkaban oh yeah woke everybody up to the possibilities within the harry potter franchise christopher columbus or chris columbus whatever you want to say it's a safer approach Yep. And it's a softer approach when these books had much more darkness to them than he allowed into those first two films. It wasn't until Prisoner that everything changes, right? Can, can I say something really quick? And I know sure. I rambled for a long time, but yeah. just it's also it's the meeting. Chris Columbus tried to create what J.K. Rowling created in the right. books. Right. Alfonso Cuaron is a new artist. Yeah, yeah bringing his artistic sensibility yeah and that's it yeah, and, and that's what you need no it's a great yeah. point, and, and that's what you need to revitalize these things you know and i and i would argue and that's why i thought the the some of the star wars fandom turning on andor i think was hilarious to me the same people who defended kenobi from nostalgia not from actual quality defending the obi-wan kenobi series from nostalgia versus what andor was doing was showing you that this is what it would actually fucking be like not the space wizards in space opining about philosophy this is what the fuck it would really be like for people on for you for all of you yeah all of you who think you're jedi you'd actually be down here on the grand floor yes. struggling to live and survive and having to you know choose a side maybe or just scrounge out a living that's the reality you know every no one's walking around 
wanting to be these people, but that's who you'd basically be. You want to fantasize that you would have been a Jedi or a Sith Lord when you wouldn't really wouldn't have. So it's, and I appreciate that's fandom and you want to escape into that, of course, but to shit on things that will show you a different approach to it, I think is always dangerous. But I also think Steve, what you've said, the reason Frank Miller existed, the reason Tarantino came through is because, and, and I would liken this connect, and I'll make this connection to Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan had been the red and yellow for years from 82, 83 on. And it's about 89, 90 where the fans start to turn on him right? because it's the same act over and over and over again. He gets beat up. He hulks out. He drops the leg and he wins. And Hogan to his credit, Terry Balea so smartly in the early nineties went heel all black turned on the fans, slimmed down, you know, insulted the fans. You turned on me. You made fun of me. Fuck you. I'm no longer doing it for you. And I think that that was the grittiness that gave life to uh, for a few years. And just like Frank Miller, just like Tarantino, Tarantino took the 80s bullshit. It was like, this is bullshit. This is what it's really like going out in the world. Gangster rap. All y'all talking about, you know, doing breakdancing in the club. We're getting killed by police officers here on the West Coast. Yep. And so it's just the change. And so now I wonder what the change is coming with the superhero films, because I agree with you. We're running out of ideas. It's getting to the point where it's about just pleasing the audience and not so much about telling a larger story. And certainly the reception to phase to the beginning of phase five, which was worse than any reaction to anything in phase four, signals a very serious situation for Marvel to take a look at here. And you throw in, the Jonathan Majors accusations and the Victoria Alonso thing. And you're seeing a company that is on its heels right now, trying to figure out how to box out of the corner. I, I think one of the things I, I agree with all that. And I think, I think one of the th- things that we lose sight of is this is an art form and mm-hmm. art, art comes from individuals. It comes from people. It doesn't come from yeah. corporations. Yeah. It's not that it's, and it's not that a corporation can't be a great supporter of the arts. Yeah. Yeah. And it can't, and it isn't that executives can't give great feedback or great editorial points or whatever, but there needs to be a perspective. I just read or listened to uh, Rick Rubin's book, The Creative Act, which, by the way, you should totally listen to. It's it's weird and philosophical and poetic and zen like. And I was like, it it took me a while to get into it because the first, you know, many chapters, I was like, what the fuck is this? Because I had to kind (laughs) of sink into his rhythm. But I actually think it's going to be one of those books like Stephen King's on writing, like Bird yeah. by Bird, like uh, the Pixar book uh, by Ed Catmull, um, Creativity Inc., that I'm going to listen to again and again. Yeah. And one of the things that he is all about is you can't force it to happen. It has to be an organic experience and that you have to force yourself to change. That's yeah. one of the things he said many times as an artist. Create a situation where you can't rely on your bag of tricks where you can't do it the way you did it before and force yourself to grow, to experiment yeah. and, and in all likelihood to fail, because I think that's one of the other things because the budgets are so big of these movies, yeah. the feel of fear of failure is really, really high, yeah. you know? And it also means that individual artists can't go into areas that might be a little more difficult. When you talk about Frank Miller and Alan Moore, when you talk about Tarantino yeah. or you, t- you talk about uh, PTA, or you talk about, you know, any of these filmmakers that come along and shook things up or the films of the seventies, 
they're all going into areas that are dangerous. Yeah. They're uncomfortable. And big, huge corporations don't want to be in the business of going into areas that are dangerous or uncomfortable with a $250, $300 million movie. They can't do that. Yeah. You know, and so the, the freedom for the artist to go like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to go. I'm going to play in these dangerous waters. Yeah. Well, the, that's not going to happen in a Marvel film. Yeah. And I'm going to see I'm going to be very curious to see once this bubble pops, Steve, who leaves film criticism, who ends their YouTube channels, who walks away, who, who shuts down their websites that cover this stuff because there's no longer a taste for it. And they can't transition into the new thing and that's going to be very interesting to see because one, one of the things at the tail end of my time uh at collider it was and one of the reasons why i don't run back to work in an outlet and it's certainly seeing all the layoffs from a number of outlets recently is um the guy who they had hired to come in and quote unquote change things his brilliant idea was to turn us into an essence a PR firm for the studios, right? Where we would never criticize any of the films, say anything negative about any of these things, and we would just create reviews or create um, videos or uh, write articles that were nothing but glowing about all the films. And his logic at his lo 24 years old, the kid, uh, was well, they're not going to want to bring their artists or their actors or their producers or their directors to come be interviewed by you, by us, if we criticize their movie. And it's like, that's the fucking problem. That's you the know? job. That's the yeah, exactly. That's it's job. literally your job. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, of course it's now completely different new ownership and they've hired a bevy of diverse writers and it's completely, I, I love reading their stuff now, but at the time, you know, it was one of the most aggravating experiences because when they were making that change, I was like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't be here. I can't look at myself in the mirror and do that kind of stuff. You've got to be honest about these things. And so it's just so, it was just so frustrating to see that kind of, and I see that happening now with these, some of the new level of critics who are afraid. There are a lot who are still out there bold enough to say their piece, but there are more than I would like to see that are more about preserving their contacts than they are about telling their actual truths about films. And that's well, the scary thing. Again, there's the connection to the political where so many reporters mm. are desperate to maintain their access. Right, right if, right. if I piss this congressman off, I'm not going to be invited to the event where they do the thing and then I won't be able to get my interview. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that is toxic on all levels. Yeah, you know, right, the, exactly. the, the point it, to honorably and honestly do film criticism, yeah. you have to be honorable and honest. Yeah. Yeah. And that means exactly. that you're not going to like everything. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. 100% agree. It's it. Some of these super. And let's start wrapping this up, Steve. I got to get to a birthday dinner for the lady outlaw. Um, Paul says, What comes after the end of film criticism, John and Steve? What comes after the end of film criticism? I, I, so I don't think it's going to end. Okay. I think there'll still be people that will do it. Yes. But but I also it's a really hard question because I absolutely think that everybody should be allowed to express their opinion and of I think course. that's great. Yeah. And I absolutely think that there is a real need for expertise. Yes. Where people who actually like it 
there are times where I listen to some podcasts, I will not name names, or see some people on social media, again, no names, <laughs> where they will say, I think this, and say a thing that sounds like a fact, when it's really clear that they actually don't know whether that's a fact or not. Yeah. And if 100,000 people listen to that thing, then there's 100,000 people thinking a fucking thing that's not a fact is true. That's true. And you know me, like, I really try to know what I'm saying. Right. And I frequently am wrong. Frequently. <laughs> and I try when I'm wrong to say, shit, I was totally wrong. Hey, everyone, I was wrong. And that's not the world we live in. So I really, right. really worry about the, hey, everyone gets to express their opinion and whether or not it's true or factual or based on anything. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I worry about that. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. And I agree with Steve. I don't think film criticism is going to die, but I think the level of film criticism that we have been enjoying and we have enjoyed that inspired so many people to become film critics or to become filmmakers, <laughs> uh, I think is dying. And I, I think that to me is heartbreaking because there are not many critics I turn to to read their stuff. You know, there's only a, like a, a, my friend Drew McWeenie, uh, William Bibiani, a few others that I still read their stuff consistently because it challenges me. They right. don't always agree with me. And I love the way they challenge my intellect because it's just like your brain is like a knife. You got to keep sharpening it yeah. or you're not going to be able to use it when you really need to use it. And the way to sharpen it is not to have everybody kiss your fucking ass and your intelligence. The way to sharpen it is to challenge yourself, to walk into the fray, to be willing to have your points of views challenged, even if it's by someone who's written an article rather than directly challenging you. It's a great way to stay sharp. And I think too many people have forgotten that. And certainly within these fandoms, you have elements of this that are elements of people that are promoting this and promoting just just kiss the ass of DC or kiss the ass of Marvel or kiss the ass of Star Wars. And that's not how you get quality entertainment in any way, shape or form. It isn't. It's how you get worse. Yeah. Well, I, I think you and I, I, I don't think I've ever actually said this out loud, but I think you and I have really benefited from seven years of serious conversations yeah. about film with each 100%. other. hundred percent. Not because I've agreed with everything you've said or right. you've agreed with everything I've said. In fact, frequently, it's because we didn't agree. Yeah. It's, and, and you and I have similar tastes in film in general. But like yeah. the fact is you come at the movies from a different perspective than I do. And yeah. every time I hear your perspective, I go, huh, not because I learn from hearing the other perspective, yeah. even if I don't agree with that perspective right it doesn't and, mean you have to agree it just means you're you can see it through new eyes that's well all. if yeah. you if we got on the podcast and you said everything that i already thought in addition <laughs> to the fact that it would be a boring fucking podcast True. i would have nothing to learn because right. i already thought all that stuff exactly. the only way i learn is by hearing people say things that i don't think yeah that's how you learn well and that's why people come at me sometimes on my channel and i don't mean coming in negative but they go like why, why don't you just do like five minute pieces or 10 minute pieces on these big topics? Why don't you just do, why, why do you go live? And I go, I go live because I love to hear what other people have to say the, who are watching me to enjoy their perspective, their analysis, their criticism, their points of views. Like I get such a joy out of that because it's a, a way to challenge my mind, a way to be like, I don't want to just see it my way. What are other ways that I'm missing? Right? It's not that I don't have confidence in my intelligence. It's more a matter of like I have confidence to be able to understand other points of views and still and still have my own 
point of view when it's all over. And so that's that's the thing that I sometimes have to bite the bullet on because I don't get as many views on the live shows, but I enjoy doing it because I think it's just better for me overall processing what I'm talking about. You know, uh, you know, oh, yeah. it's, it's just real quick, what metaphor yeah. just occurred to me that I know you'll appreciate, which is that they always say that the best athletes, the best boxers always existed at time where there were rivals that were yeah. – that could really come at them, whether it's, you know, Ali and Frazier and Foreman or, you know, it's like there are these eras where it's not just if it's just one person's great, they can't really be that great. Is that this is why I continually try to listen to and read sources that I strongly don't agree with. And I try to find the best ones who right. are really could kick the shit out of me, because the more my brain gets the shit kicked out of it, the stronger my brain gets. Again. Yeah, exactly. It's like training for fuck's sake. Yep. Paul says the end of the superhero movies is not good for struggling movie theater industry. That's that's a fair that's point. A fair point. Yeah. 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 A very Absolutely. fair point. But if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. That's the game. And so all these multiplexes expanded to mirror what was happening with more and more bigger films, bigger quality approaches from the directors like Cameron and other people, uh, uh, Lucas Coppola, wanting their best, wanting the films to be presented the best way. But, you know, like all things, it comes to an end. And don't be surprised if these mom and pop the movie theaters start to rise back up again because oh, be these great. multiplexes have, have gone away, you know. Yeah. There's still the mom and pop bookstores out there, uh, people, uh, along with the Barnes and Nobles. And even those have kind of, a lot of those big uh, bookstore companies have crashed and burned as well. JMB says that lady outlaw is a keeper watching wrestling on her actual birthday instead. Hope you got an amazing night planned. Happy birthday to her. Yes, we're celebrating tonight and on Sunday uh, because I will be doing live watch alongs of WrestleMania over the next two nights on the <laughs> Outlaw Nation channel. She is very gracious because her birthday is tomorrow. Very gracious to let me have both those evenings uh, to do that. Um, uh, Paul, uh, Doug sent us a Streamlab. Do you guys think sometimes critics fear criticizing well-reviewed films because they are afraid of being called a racist or a bigot? For example, I wasn't a fan of Moonlight, and I know you, John, were not a fan of Crazy Rich Asians. Thanks a bunch. Thanks a bunch. Well, you I, do this more than me. Okay. So I, yeah. I'll let you answer first. I, as a person of color, I don't fear criticizing any film, right? I'm, I'm not, that doesn't enter into my mind. Uh, I didn't like Crazy Rich Asians. I think this. I think it was a little like just. I think the, I think the script was good, and I think some of the comedic moments didn't work for me. Do I still like the actors? Do I still like the director, John? Of course I do, but it just didn't work for me. But the fact that it made all this money and was representative of the Asian community and, and did a fantastic job for showing representation, I absolutely applaud that. You know, so that's the way I approach something like that. So I don't. But a, a, a white critic might fear these kinds of things, certainly because. People are more in tune to how that criticism in the past has dismissed uh, communities of color or underrepresented communities in these films um, and, and has let certain representations pass without any criticism in previous films. So I can see how that might be an issue, um, but I don't think so. It, the the, the well-established critics find a way, the intelligent critics find a way to speak about not liking a certain film without sliding into any kind of dog whistles or what have you with their criticism. So, uh, yeah, I think the smart ones know how to do it. Um, and it's the less intelligent ones that stumble into the bad minefields, in my opinion. Uh, 
I will be very honest. I won't speak on the criticism thing because I don't consider myself a critic in that sense. But I will say in our world of social media, in in our world of toxicity, fear is always there for me. I mean, I don't have a fear if I'm talking about, you know, I ate a delicious ice cream sundae and it was delicious. I don't have really (laughs) a fear about saying that. But, you know, we just spent a couple of months on Tarantino dealing with some stuff. We're, you know, we're about to go into some other movies that are dealing with some other stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, and I want to be more honest about my opinions politically. I want I want to speak in a less fearful manner. Mm-hmm. And I know that I'm going to get pushback from the left yeah. because of some of my opinions. And do, is that scary? It is scary. And I'm hoping to continue to fight against that fear. Yeah, fair enough. From the left or from the right? From both sides. Is that what you're saying? I'm not afraid of the fe- of the attacks from the right because right. I'm a lefty. You know, right, right. it's the, the but it's the attacks from my people right. where I've spent my life as a Berkeley old school liberal progressive fighting for liberal causes. And I've got things I need to push back on some of the things that I see happening. Yeah. You know, it's like we I, we should we could do a short sometime on fucking um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, what's his, what's the writer uh, uh, just went out of my brain? Oh, is it Roald Dahl? Is that yeah, Roald, Roald Dahl yeah, rewriting yeah. Roald Dahl to please a a more liberal, less mean spirited thing? And I'm like, Roald Dahl's mean spirited. That's what those books are. Yes, I know he was anti Semitic. You don't rewrite his fucking books. That pisses me off. So those are areas where you know the, the I will disagree with some more yeah. lefty causes. Yeah, fair point. Um, all right, but there we go. Thank you all so much for joining us for this uh, fantastic conversation. At least in my opinion, fantastic conversation. About, I liked it too. Yeah, good. <laughs> about uh, toxic fandoms versus uh, uh, film critics, and if that's leading to the death of film criticism or the death of those franchises that these toxic fandoms love so much, due to the possible mediocrity that could come out as a result. Um, uh, Steve, uh, what do we have to tell the people who are watching about our show? Uh, well, it is the cinephiles, and if you're watching it here on YouTube, that's fantastic. You could, should subscribe and like it here. You should also subscribe to it on your local podcast feed because yeah. that's where we're primarily, and that could be Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher. And if you happen to be on Apple Podcasts, we'd love your reviews. You can buy or stream every movie we've ever reviewed on cinephiles.net. And on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, we just released an epic conversation on uh, AI that was terrifying and fantastic yes and so the only way to get that is to become a supporter on patreon we have huge new plans coming for patreon we have been in serious discussions and there's a lot of announcements coming there and i want to make one other announcement which is that next week we are doing something very unusual in cinephiles we are there is since we just did our season of tarantino yeah on kcrw which is the local and unbelievably great npr station they just put out a series of podcasts called Fade In, Quentin Tarantino, and Pulp Fiction. And they are a fictional audio dramatic telling of yeah. the beginnings of Tarantino's career. And we were fortunate enough to have Mark Ramsey, the producer, director, writer, and star of Fade In, on the Cinephiles. We did an interview with him. And we, in addition to that interview, we're going to be releasing the first episode of Fade In right here on the Cinephiles. So that's a totally new thing for us. We're very excited about it. The interview was fantastic and we think you will really like it yep there you go well said well said steve yeah you guys are gonna enjoy it we, we had a really great time interviewing mark it's gonna be a lot of fun for you all to listen to as well um all right as for me you can follow me at the roca says did you already say where they can follow you 
Oh, SR Morris, it's right down there. And of course, Enterprise Incidents, where we are halfway through the animated series. And we just had a fantastic guest last week. We had the painter Alex Ross on Enterprise Incidents. It was an absolutely great conversation. Uh, as for me, you can follow me at The Roca Says on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, uh, and The Outlaw Nation on Twitch, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca Says, my other podcast, The Hot Mic and The Geek Buddies, uh, that are separate podcast feeds for you all to enjoy as well. And yes, as I said, if you are a wrestling fan and you want to watch WrestleMania with me, I will be doing live watch-alongs both nights, for God's sakes, of WrestleMania coming up here on the Peacock channel. I will be on The Outlaw Nation channel, not The Strong Style channel the outlaw nation channel doing that so come and join me for that uh, all right you guys are awesome thank you so much take care of yourselves have a great weekend appreciate all the stream labs and the super chats and we'll talk to you next time with another brand new episode of the cinephiles peace <laughs>